You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. We discuss on this program complex issues and events shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. If you'd like to find out more about our journal and about objectivism as well, you can go to newideal.einrand.org, which I've got up on the screen. If you are watching today through social media, through Facebook, YouTube, or Periscope, where we regularly broadcast these programs, that's a great thing. But if you'd like to be able to interact with us more directly, best place to do that is through Zoom, where you can chat and ask questions of uh, the speaker today. And you can do that by going to Zoom zoom.us slash join. Meeting ID for that is 812-506-718. Our topic today is the question, what drove the lockdowns? And to get an answer to that question, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Amish Adalja, who is an expert on pandemic preparedness. I will say a little bit more about him and his bio uh, in a minute. Uh, but I'll, I'll mention a few things first. Uh, one is that while we're definitely going to try to answer this question today, uh, I think there's new developments in the state of the pandemic that we need to discuss, especially in light of the events of the last week. So we're going to focus on that a little bit first. But I'd also like to let people know uh, about an article that our guest wrote. Uh, you can look this up through Google. He posted it on the medium.com site. It's called COVID-19, A Path Forward. And he wrote this back in March. Uh, noting our current level of preparedness for this pandemic, noting that we were seriously underprepared, and rec- you know, recommending a number of steps to deal with it. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today, and we're going to evaluate the steps that have actually been taken to deal with it. So uh, without much further ado, I'd like to welcome onto the program Dr. Adalja. Uh, hi, Amish. Thanks, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, let me just let our viewers know a little bit about you if, if you don't know him already. I mean, he's been uh, appearing multiple times a day uh, on all the major networks to give interviews on this topic. He's a, Dr. Adolge is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. His work focuses on emerging infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. Uh, he actively practices infectious disease, critical care, and emergency medicine in the Pittsburgh metropolitan area. I know he's been treating patients with COVID-19 and well actually even the short version of uh, your bio Amish is pretty long so I think I'll I think I'll leave it at that uh, suffice it to say you are one of the leading experts on this question today and so with that in mind I wanted to start by asking you to just kind of bring us up to date uh, tell us something about your estimate of where we are in this pandemic what are the numbers telling us on the ground right now? And especially if you'd say a little bit more to our audience about what effect you think the events the last week, the protests and the riots uh, is going to have on our ability to deal with this pandemic. 
I would say that we're at the end of the beginning. This is going to be a virus that is with us until there is a vaccine. It is not going to disappear magically. It's not going to be something that we can't account for in our daily activity. It's going to be something that's going to be there because it is a, vac it is a virus that's novel to the human race. There's no population immunity to it, and it spreads very efficiently. So you put all of those things into any kind of infectious disease formula, and that tells you that this virus is going to be with us for some time. We have gotten better in the United States. Now we're in June of 2020, much, much better than March when, uh, we re when things really got bad. We've gotten much better at hospital capacity. Diagnostic testing is in an incredibly better place. We're doing over 400,000 tests per day. We've gotten better at treating these patients. We've gotten health departments able to hire case contact investigators. So that's why we're seeing control of this virus in many parts of the country. And if you look at the percent positive of tests, which I think is an important metric, how hard you have to look to find tests. As a nation, that level is in the single digits, which is very good, much different than what we saw earlier on when it was above 20%. That said, there are hot, there are hot spots and we have problems with, for example, meat packing plants, which have led to explosive outbreaks. We have places like Montgomery, Alabama and the Twin Cities, ironically, before the before the, the riot at their peak ICU capacity before this. So this isn't going to completely go away. What we're going to see is basically um, roving epidemics across the country as, as we kind of move forward in this new era of the pandemic where social distancing restrictions are lifted and people begin to socialize. I do think that any, it's important to remember that any type of social interaction gives the virus an opportunity to transmit. And when you have mass gatherings, and a mass gathering could be a protest, it could be a, a, a professional football game, it could be a rock concert. All of those are going to create opportunities where the virus can move from person to person. And if you think about it from a health department perspective about how are we gonna contact trace the exposures, that becomes very scary because you're not going to be able to get all of them. And you worry about chains of transmission being established that go unrecognized and spill over into hospitals and put hospitals into stress again. And that's basically the story of this pandemic in the very beginning. That's what happened. We had un unrecognized chains of transmission that boiled over and put us into a problem. And that's the, that's the worry. With these protests, a couple of things are really important is that they're, they're not, people are shouting and yelling, which is what you would expect in these types of uh, events. And that creates more droplets, which can spread the virus easier than if people are not shouting and yelling. They're also being hit with tear gas and pepper spray, which cause people to cough. Uh, that's a perfect way to create viral particles everywhere. So there are a lot of circumstances around these protests that are, that are very worrisome um, about what might happen. And we've already heard about testing sites being shut down in predominantly African-American communities. And remember, African-American communities were hit the hardest by this virus. They're disproportionately those that are in the ICU uh, that have critical illness. And now some of those testing sites have been temporarily closed because, um, because of safety issues. So th this is really going to compound the, the effect of the pandemic. And it's going to be, be something, I think that's a significant uh, setback to how well we move forward. To follow up on uh, one aspect of what you just said, the I've heard at least some commentators say that, well, the protests are outside. And uh, so that that will uh, somehow mitigate the, the, the risk that the protester face, uh, protesters are facing. Is that is there any truth in that? We definitely see transmission being less likely to occur in outdoor settings, everything being equal, but everything isn't equal. This isn't just being outdoor at the beach. This is uh, everybody very closely packed together, shouting and yelling and being being gassed and, and pepper sprayed, which is causing cough, coughing and, and sneezing and uh, body fluids to emanate. So I think all of that is 
is really going to uh, outweigh any benefit we get. I mean, it's, it's, it's good that they're outdoors versus indoor, but I do think we'll still see transmission uh, in these settings. Before these riots happened, before these protests happened, uh, there we were beginning to open up and, and beaches were beginning to open up and you were getting some voices who were shaming people for going outside on the beaches or, or gathering in any numbers, really, uh, without masks, without any kind of social distancing. Does it bother you at all that some of those voices who had been engaged in that kind of shaming uh, haven't spoken up about the protests and the riots? I know that there are some that haven't. I think it's it's complicated by a lot of individuals in the field who have um, strong affiliations with the idea of what the what the original protests were about the the police brutality and the racism and for many of them that's considered a major public health issue and a public health issue that outweighs the coronavirus and that's why they've been much more silent and I think it speaks to a broader point and I think it goes back to earlier protesters and and just how we move forward with this pandemic that everybody that everybody has certain values that they think are important to them. And I do think fighting racism is an important value. And that's going to outweigh for that individual the risk of contracting the virus. And that's the same true, same for people who were, who were protesting for their livelihood earlier on in some of those, uh, in, in some of those settings across the country. Uh, and, it's, and it's the same of people who've opened up their stores because they want to have their livelihood back. And I think that's important that, that it's not life at any cost. It's, it's, it's those, those certain values that, that are at stake that are going to outweigh your, your, um, your fear of this virus. And I think that's an important point. And I think that many in the field are actually realizing that, but it took this event mm. um, to actually come to that position. That, that's very interesting perspective. Um, so I think that brings us somewhat up to date. Uh, let's take a step back now uh, to talk about the, the question we initially wanted to answer. Uh, because before the before the protests and the riots happened, the main new development was that state governments were slowly beginning to lift uh, these lockdown restrictions. And when this was happening, I started to read a number of accounts in the media. Uh, one of them was, uh, for instance, an article in The Atlantic by David Graham. And he wrote the following. And I'm, I'd be curious to hear your reaction to this, because it strikes me as representative of a number of different accounts that I've seen. He said, as of this week, and this is like two weeks ago, all 50 states have begun reopening to some degree from counter pandemic measures. That's a remarkable milestone and a big shift in policy in a short period of time. It might be cause for celebration if it were clearly rooted in either public opinion or public health data, but the reopening comes as case numbers in many parts of the country continue to rise. And when he wrote this, it's true. There were, the case numbers were rising in many places. Uh, they've been rising still here in Orange County, even as we were trying to open. I know that. But his comment, to me at least, implies that the original reason for the lockdowns was to make sure the number of cases would be decreasing or perhaps eliminated. Uh, is, is your understanding that that is actually what the goal is, was and is, or was it something else? What goal do you think was actually driving government officials' decisions about this? That was never the goal. The goal was to flatten the curve, meaning it doesn't necessarily change the number of cases or the number of deaths you have, but it slows them to a pace that's manageable by the health departments and their contact tracers, as well as the hospital and their hospital capacity. And I think that was something that wasn't, that eventually kind of disappeared from the rhetoric. That was clearly what was shown all over television. You can remember those graphs in a big line, a red line where hospital capacity was trying to flatten it. And, and many governors did 
put hospital capacity into their metrics. And that's why they were lifting, because they were actually following the actual policy. If you look, for example, at New York State's metrics, one of them was, do you have what's the capacity in your intensive care units in your hospitals for COVID patients to take care of so that you don't, so, so that, and, and once those criteria were met, you started to see places open back up. And I think that was the, the, the best way to do it when you're gonna use a shutdown. It has to be keyed to something that was actually um, a real metric that was measurable because this wasn't going to go away. And I think that many people thought that, at, that the shutdowns were to get cases down to zero and, and that's just not going to happen. Our, our quote unquote shutdowns were, were not as, they weren't designed for that. They weren't Wuhan style, complete lockdowns with military police. There were so many things that were considered essential. Obviously, we, we are, a lot of us wanted more things to be considered essential, but a lot, there was a lot of uh, leakiness. Like in, for example, in England, there were only certain hours where you could walk your dog. I mean, that's very different than what we had. So those, those, these shutdowns were not meant to, to take the cases down to zero. And I think it's kind of a shifting of goalposts or just a misunderstanding of the whole concept of what this meant. Um, it, it is about hospital capacity. It's always been about hospital capacity. And that's why I mentioned Montgomery, Alabama and the Twin Cities, because they're places where we worry about backsliding. Um, many other places though have the ability to, to take care of these uh, patients. And, they, and there have been some memes that have been going around saying, you know, that this, the, the lifting of these economic shutdowns is not, doesn't mean that the virus is gone. It just means we have room in the ICU for you. And people say that kind of facetiously, but it's actually true. That's what this is what was about was hospital capacity. I've seen those memes as well. So even granted that the goal wasn't as, uh, as much as, as to eliminate all cases, it was simply to protect hospital capacity. If that's the goal that was actually driving the decisions to have these lockdowns, I'm curious to hear what you as an expert on this topic think about that goal. Do you, do you think that the, the, the wide scale uh, statewide mandatory economic shutdowns that we had, were they actually necessary to protect the hospitals? Were they, were they justifiable? Not in every place. Um, I would say in the United States, New York City was in a position where they were in really dire straits. And you have to remember that hospitals can't turn away anybody. I mean, their laws, like there's the Amtella law, they cannot turn away people. Uh, they, they have no way to deal with it, uh, except for just to absorb that kind of a shock. And there was a real concern that the New York City hospitals would have to start rationing care, meaning that people would not get the standard of care. They would go to what was called crisis standards of care. And I do think that's what drove some of the actions in New York City. And then it basically became a domino cascading effect that other governors were following what was happening in New York State and New York City, and not really realizing at that point that this wasn't necessarily extrapolable to every part of the country, or not even every part of the state of New York, that there are special characteristics in New York City that drove that outbreak. It wasn't surprising that that happened in New York City and to the hospitals that it did happen to. But it wasn't, we quickly found that this wasn't the case in many places in the country. And it took some time for those governors to pivot and start to to think about reopening because I, I think that they're very risk averse and they were acting in in the attempt to save as many lives as possible and they did not want to be blamed for anything that that happened so they needed some time to see what if they were going to get hit and then they really needed some time to figure out how they were going to walk out of that messaging that they had put into place and it was unfortunate many of us were arguing that not everything needed to be done in such a blanket way that there are ways to do this in a much more precision guided way it's not necessarily in new york city but in other places where you say okay we're not going to have mass gatherings we're going to we're going to ramp up hospital capacity. We're going to get contact tracers in our in our health departments. We're going to make sure our diagnostic testing is continually expanding, and we're going to keep monitoring and and look at those most impactful activities that lead to transmission. 
lock down our nursing homes where, for example, in my home state of Pennsylvania, I think around two thirds of the deaths were in nursing homes, that there was a massive failure to protect those individuals in nursing homes. There was ways to do this that would have been much more guided by the science than in a, blank, in a blanket manner. And even Governor Cuomo himself had said that maybe he shouldn't have been as as, as heavy-handed, but they were scared, and this is a blunt tool. And the, and the other important point is, the only reason they did that was because everything spiraled out of control through January and February, mass evasion at the federal level in terms of what this meant and getting people ready for this. And then they're left, the governors were left with no federal leadership and a one blunt tool that they had in their power. Actually, maybe now's a good time to ask a question that uh, pop, just popped up in the Q&A module. And I should mention, uh, for those of you in Zoom who'd like to ask questions, best place to do this is in the Q&A module, not in chat. Hover over your screen. There's a button that says Q&A. You can plug questions in there. Andy says, asked the question. He says, you mentioned earlier how the pandemic was badly mishandled in the beginning. If it had been better handled, would that have changed how many people ultimately get the disease before the pandemic ends? So what might things have looked like uh, if things had been handled in the way you think they should have been from the beginning? I do think that this was inevitable that we would be hit with cases. And if you go back to what I was saying back in January, that was clearly what this, just based on the viral characteristics. What I think might have happened better is we would have met those cases much, much quicker. We wouldn't have these these unnoticed chains of transmission that were bubbling over in places like Santa Clara County in California or in Washington or in um, Washington State and, and in New York. And you would have been able to meet meet those cases early. We would have tested much more broadly, knowing who was infected, when and where, not just testing people from China and not just testing people with severe disease, testing mild cases, testing people that came from other places. Remember, this was spreading in France around Christmas time. There were community acquired cases uh, in, in, at Christmas time. So th there was just this, th th it's, to me, it's very predictable that we ended up in the situation that we did because we allowed the mild cases to go unnoticed. We, we did not get our diagnostic manufacturers up to speed about this. This was something that thought we thought we could easily, it's gonna be small, it's gonna be a trickle is what some people thought and that they could handle it with the CDC testing kits, which then ended up having many, many flaws with them. And when, when it became apparent that we had community spread going on in multiple places in the United States and the federal government had no solution and we were coming up with shortages of tests, test kits, test reagents had no end, had no end in sight, uh, that's why we ended up the way we did. And at this time, we, were, we already knew that this was something that was very lethal to elderly populations. We should have been locking down nursing homes uh, very, very early. And think about what happened in Washington state. That outbreak was explosive in Kirkland, Washington, because it was inside a nursing home. If the, there was such a, uh, I, I think, inability to actually translate the science that we were getting from China and from other countries around the world and from experts into actual policy because there was this desire to think somehow that we were going to be impervious to this, uh, to this virus, and that was never going to be the case based on its biological characteristics. I suspect that there's a, a long story to be told at some point in the future about how, how this all happened. You can read um, that the New York Times has a very long piece today about the CDC um, that, yeah. that, that I recommend people read. Good. I'll be sure to do that. So uh, one way or another, it sounds like these locked, especially because this was about hospital capacity, and in most places it sounds like you're saying that capacity is safe, these lockdowns are going to be lifted. What do you think is going to be the immediate result? Do you think we can expect cases to, to, to lift, to pop up again? Are there going to be spikes? Uh, how soon is that going to happen? What do you think, how are we going to 
handle that. There definitely are going to be cases and how big those spikes are is really going to be dependent upon that's the health department, their ability to contact trace and clinicians being able to diagnose those cases quickly through access to testing. So there's going to be cases just you have to just kind of have that as a as a baseline as a baseline a fact that we're going to get. And, and I think that you're going to have a lot of insight into what goes on in hospital capacity more so than most people have ever thought about. You're going to probably see news stories about, you know, this, this ICU is having this many patients, this, this many is going to have that. that many. And I think that's the way we're going to go forward is, is looking at it that way. But the, the spikes are going to hopefully be much more manageable and much more spaced out than they were early on and allow people to have some return to normalcy with this virus in their midst. And people are going to have to be able to take their own, they're going to make individual decisions about what risk is tolerable to them. And there are going to be people that I would recommend you probably should not do that because you're at high risk for getting a severe complication and that virus is out there, just like I say during to them with other risks that are out there. But it's going to kind of be something you can't fully prescribe and it's going to be different for every person. And I think that a lot of people want some kind of ready-made answer. Um, and there isn't a ready-made answer for this. This is now a new risk that you have to, to take into account every time you step out the door. And for some people, that may be too much of a risk, but for some other people, they may go back to their normal, normal life. And then a lot of people are going to be in between. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit more and, and generalize a bit. Uh, there's a person in the uh, Q&A box who's saying, surely another pandemic will occur in the next five to 10 years. Uh, <clears throat> how should that be handled? What will you do differently? Would you say no lockdowns, partial closings, hotspot closings, more testing, more responsibility? Uh, on private businesses to choose to allow closings. Um, he mentions a few other things. How do you think a free and responsible people generally should try to conduct themselves uh, when in the face of a pandemic? They, they need to be doing things based on the facts about that pandemic. And that comes from the public health authorities and infectious disease physicians like me telling you what this virus is, what it represents, what the risks are for getting it. And, and some of that does fall on the government as, a con as preventing contagious infectious diseases. And it's not like this pandemic is normal. I think 2009 H1N1 was much more like a normal response where you had a very swift response, very quick characterization of the virus and, and certain protective actions that were put into place that limited um, the, the destruction that it caused where you did not have politicization or any kind of denial of this. As soon as these cases were in Mexico, you basically um, you actually had the president at that time saying the barn door is open is basically that it's here. Don't, that's, that's such a stark difference. Then there's 12 cases here. It's going to be zero soon. Um, so the, I, I do think we know how to handle pandemics. We had plans. We've written reports, multiple reports. Um, I'm writing new reports now on the same thing. And I'm, I'm actually cutting and pasting from old reports because it hasn't changed. Um, so it's a, it's a question about having the political will to implement them. And I think that what happened here, and you'll read, if you read the full story of with the CDC, th there was just this reticence to, to criticize the, t the highest levels of government where some of these directives were coming from. And I think that's how, we, how we've done it. But I think a responsible person would look at the risks and juxtapose them to their life and what they do, who they're in contact with, and then take, take their right protective actions. And if you, can, if you can count on your government to actually prevent you from getting infected by actually by taking care of the contagious individuals and having them isolated and, and doing the contact tracing, the, the core parts of public health that for what health departments and the CDC were founded, then you can actually go about your life with this in your midst. But if you have failures on multiple levels, then, then the ordinary citizen is kind of left to fend for themselves and having governors who don't have that type of capacity that the federal government does using tools that are going to 
to restrict people's actions because of that. So I don't think that no one's plan was to have lockdowns. We were arguing against them in the, from the very beginning, um, and then it just became out of control. And even if you look at the original papers where they've justified, those were papers written by you know, some of my mentors that talked about using them as a voluntary measure and actually delineated all of the risks, saying this probably isn't the way to do it, but these are, this is what happens because we've heard about them in other places. So this wasn't something in our playbook to, to ever use. It was only used because, because we got put in a bad position and that's all governors were, were being advised to do because they needed to put a stop to it. And then it just became much harder for them to, to peel those, those restrictions back after they'd already committed to them. So this next question is one that I, I, I wish I didn't even have to ask because it's I mean, sort of an embarrassing question if you ask me, uh, but it, it's become such a news item that I think I, I'd really like to hear your perspective on it. I mean, there are some people out there who, who look at these lockdowns and they, especially the way that they all happened at the same time all over the country. And they think that there must have been some really nefarious motivation behind them, that it's some kind of conspiracy uh, to make Trump look bad, to make sure he doesn't get elected, to impose totalitarianism. Uh, as someone with an inside view on this crisis, what's the most obvious thing you want to say to the people who, who are tempted by these kind of conspiracy claims? Trump didn't need the lockdowns to look bad. He looked bad from the very beginning with this, this, uh, this pandemic. Uh, this was a massive fumble from the very beginning. Uh, there was no coordination or anything other than the fact that people were trying to save people's lives and they were left with one tool that they knew how to use. And I say that they used it too broadly and I wouldn't have argued that they needed to do it in the manner that they did, but there was no nefarious intent behind it. It was actually the intent to save people's lives. And that's the reason why it took so long to lift them because they were so nervous about being blamed for for any deaths that occurred, that they really had to remind people it's hospital capacity, we, we're going to get more deaths. And it took some time for people to, to accept that. And governors were just very, very, they're, they're political people and they're very nervous about being, being blamed for anything. And, and there was no coordination here other than the lack of, it's actually a lack of coordination that's happened. Because um, you, if you look at the state, so for example, in the state of Pennsylvania where I was in, you couldn't do private construction, but across the border, you could do private construction. Or in the state of Michigan, you had stuff like you can drive to your house, your second house only if it's outside the state, but if your second house is in the state, you cannot drive to that. That's not coordination. I mean, that's just kind of people grasping at things, trying to figure out what they can do to decrease transmission. Or you can't, in certain states, you could use a boat, but if the boat had a motor, you couldn't use the boat. Um, so certain things like that were not, there wasn't any coordination. This was actually, you know, this hodgepodge between states just trying to figure out what they could do best. But I, there was no coordination to make anybody look bad. They, I don't think any governor wanted to do a, a shutdown or a lockdown because they knew what that means for, for their own tax revenues. They, they created a lot of dis, discontent. Um, they created a, a nidus for protests that occurred, which, which, which themselves had a risk for, for spreading the virus. Um, some people's political careers are going to be ruined, and politicians, that's, that's one of their highest priorities is preserving their political career. So I, I don't think that you could think of any kind of conspiracy this, this, uh, this vast that would do anything other than uh, the fact that they were, uh, other than they were just trying to, to find the best path forward and, and very scared and very nervous about some, without any kind of federal guidance when you have the, the CDC basically handicapped from the very beginning. So you've mentioned a number of things you think uh, governments should have done, things that they maybe shouldn't have done. Uh, and I, you've made concrete recommendations for what pandemic preparedness looks like. Now that we've gone through this uh, and we know where the failures have been, are there, are there ways that you would recommend governments 
take steps to make sure this kind of panicking uh, doesn't happen again. What's, is there a legal remedy to, to ensure that we take a better path in the future for this kind of thing? Part of that question is, is hard to answer because we did have plans and, and they just weren't executed. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we need to do is really let the science lead this and let, let groups like the CDC take charge and not be worried about the political consequences of, of what they are saying regarding how to take the best protective actions against it. I do think there is definitely an interest in streamlining the ability to make vaccines and antivirals and diagnostic tests testing available and and that's really you're seeing that all over the place that there that the bureaucracy is being cut and that there is there's always been this idea that you need to move very fast in a pandemic and i think that's starting to really be seen be concretized in many people's minds and you're seeing most of that red tape being cut through very very quickly but but the issue is is that it's these pandemic threats are always going to come to us and i think it's just about having awareness and being better at doing it. and a lot of that isn't necessarily the government it's the government kind of not impeding it. It's it's allowing the hospitals and, and doctors to be able to diagnose and to have that situational awareness and having partners in other countries that are feeding a continual bit of information about what the new threats are com- coming and then starting to prepare quickly and, and making it easy for companies to make candidate vaccines and candidate diagnostic tests and antivirals. And that's actually a project I'm working on now is trying to figure out how to streamline that whole pro- process as fast as possible so it's not something that we're doing on the fly. I mean, that's the best way to do it because these threats aren't going to go any, anywhere and, and there are going to be challenges to, to be met and you, don't want, and you want the government to be able to accelerate the development or, or not impede that development by fine-tuning the whole response mechanism, allowing private companies as well as some of the public health agencies to be able to move quickly. And I think that's the best way to do it. And that's something that's been in our plans for a long, long time. So you've, you've stressed that there is definitely, you think, a proper role for government in protecting people against contagious infection. Uh, you've, you've mentioned that the CDC and other agencies had plans for how to contain and test and trace and isolate in the event of a pandemic. Uh, these plans for some reason were not put into effect in the way that they recommended. One of the things that you say in your article in that article on Medium is that the budget for pandemic preparedness was lower uh, than the budget for military bans. What, what do you think, what are the things the government uh, has, has been spending money on that it hasn't been spending, mo- that it shouldn't be spending money on so that it can be spending mo- more on, uh, on pandemic preparedness and things like this? What, what has the CDC been doing that it shouldn't have been doing that it, where, so, so that it can be better prepared? So one thing I, I think is that the, the idea of public health, if you go back to it historically, it was really about communicable disease control. That's what the CDC's original name was the Centers for Communicable Disease. And that it was founded in response to malaria. And now it's the Centers for Disease Control. So there's there's a plural there. And they have other parts of the CDC that are working on injury prevention, for example, or environmental health, or occupational health. And all of that, those budgets, if you put those together, I mean, that's very substantial funds that are being spent on what weren't the core objectives of the CDC. And then you find that the CDC is constrained in its core mission, what they're designed for. And then I think that's, 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 where we, why, how you end up the way we are, where you have a CDC that's under-resourced and underfunded because they've got so many extraneous things that they're dealing with. And, and you know, there's, it's been argued that they spend more on non-infectious disease stuff than they do on infectious disease. And no one would ever think of that because the CDC, they're the disease detectives. I mean, they're, they're, they're the, pre, the preeminent agency. I mean, I sort of idolize them as a, 
uh, and I still do, uh, for, for the, the people that work there, some of the stuff that they've done. I mean, that, that's where the eradication of the smallpox, uh, the smallpox virus from the planet came from, was from, the, the, from someone from the CDC, my, my, my uh, former mentor, D.A. Henderson, who then went to the WHO and, and ran, ran that program. So I, I do think that that's the case, and it's not just the case at the CDC, it's even the case at the local health departments, where the health departments are, are worried about nutrition or rating restaurants on their nutritional value, worry about um, what air pollution and air quality, lots of things that are important issues, but they take, they, it's important to know that they're not, they're moving, they're moving funds to, for those politically prioritized projects and not staying on and, and being resource constrained in their core mission. Because it's, I mean, nobody, no health department, if you think of like a local health department, they want to say, we're the best at stopping all these gonorrhea cases. I mean, that's not something they, that's not flashy. But if they talk about air pollution, that's really flashy. That that mm. gets headlines. But so this is this is kind of the perpetual problem with with um, the health department. When it's working well and they're doing their core job, you don't even see them or hear them because it's all working. It's all unseen. That that you're not getting tuberculosis cases in your town. You're not having syphilis spread on uh, rampantly because all those cases are being identified and contact tracing is going on. But it it's not something anybody wants to brag about. And our health departments go through these crises, these series of panic and neglect where when there's a, an outbreak or something or during anthrax, for example, they got tons of funding and then it goes away and people forget about it. And then they go back to these non-core things. And that's why we are always constrained with our ability to respond to actual public health crises with contagious diseases, because that's not something that those agencies are prioritized by. Many health departments don't have infectious disease doctors, even on staff, uh, even at the state level because there's so many other priorities that are much more politically prized than communicable disease control, which is why they were founded. I mean, think of Typhoid Mary, and, and that, that's, that's, that's what you think about when you think about public health. That, that is uh, really interesting material. I, I knew that the CDC was doing a lot of different things. I didn't know it was quite as many as you're, as you're suggesting. I think we should start to take questions from the audience. We've already built up quite a queue of them. So if you're on Zoom, again, the best way to do this is to use the Q&A module, hover over your screen, hit that button. Uh, we do have someone monitoring questions on Facebook and YouTube as well, uh, but uh, we, we, we're gonna prioritize the Zoom questions. And there's one that actually just came in, uh, Dr. Adolja, that I think maybe is a good place to start. It's this question from Sam. He says, probably a simple-minded question, but what exactly is a pandemic and who gets to decide when to declare that we're in one? and to release uh, governments to use coercive measures. How will we know when the pandemic is under control and that these measures are to be lifted? Now, either, he might mean very different things by coercive measures here, but, but what is a pandemic and uh, how does it, how, what's, it, what's the distinction from an epidemic and what, how do we know when we're in one? So you being a philosopher are better at the Greek, but it means every, <laughs> it means among the people or everywhere, all the people is what it means. So it's an infectious disease that is not confined to one geographic area. That is that is um, spreading from one one place to another place, and, and some people use the word pandemic in the wrong manner, like a pandemic of horn honking or something. Is the example I always use. It's not. It's usually an infectious disease that's encompassing the entire world. And remember that a pandemic doesn't. The definition doesn't speak about severity. It could be a pandemic of a new virus that's causing mild illness, or it could be one that's very severe. So that's that's what the word means. And there's not an official declaration. When the WHO said we're in a pandemic, it was just a recognition of a fact that all of us knew anyway. There's not a specific. Um, trigger that's pulled when you call something a pandemic. There are different ways that people think about infectious disease emergencies, different 
different levels of alarm. And the WHO alarm that they ring is called the global health, uh, uh, it's a public health emergency of international concern. That's, they call it, it's called, sometimes they call it a FEIC or a FAKE or something like that is how they try to say, but P-H-E-I-C. That's, that's when there's certain concern about an infectious disease. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a pandemic before you take action. You actually don't want to take action. You don't want to be waiting till it's a pandemic before you take action. When there's an epidemic, meaning a lot of cases in a given, geog in one geographic area, that's when you want to take you want to you want to work at that level before something becomes a pandemic even at a lower level even one case of something if you can control it can stop something from becoming an outbreak let alone an epidemic or a pandemic but it's it's not a time there's not going to be a time when this pandemic is over until there's a vaccine because this virus has established itself in the human population what will happen is the risk perception will change and we'll be better at dealing with it so it will be the, the, coer the coercive measures don't, aren't triggered because it's a pandemic. The, the coercive, you know, the quote unquote coercive measures are, are put into place because they were trying to affect a specific aim. And, and it, it can be one case. So if you, if you have tuberculosis, you have active tuberculosis, you're going to get a you're going to get an isolation order from the court if you're walking around town without with, uh, exposing other individuals. And that's not just, that's, that's an end of one. It's one person. So it's not that it's the, size it's actually what the disease represents and what the risk is to others irrespective of the size it's obviously worse when there's a bigger size and and sometimes when the size is so big then they have to remove all of them because there's no point in containing it anymore and it's gonna so it's it's very it's very difficult it very it's kind of very nuanced and it all depends on what the agent is that you're talking about and and what the risk is to others what what, what triggers a public health action those are some uh, clarifying distinctions i think and one of the things that you've been stressing uh, throughout is to be able to deal with these kinds of situations. It's, it's obviously important to listen to the science and to what the scientists, whether private or government, are telling us. And uh, we've got a number of questions and comments on this topic, and I'm, I'll, I'll try to put them together into the following. They're saying, the, the questions and commenters are saying, well, it's the scientists who told us to do these extremely restrictive statewide lockdowns it was just the governors were just listening to what they had to say and so they're the ones to blame uh is there any truth to that or or what have the scientists actually been saying but it, i think scientists had varying opinions and what they were basically saying is the science if you want to stop the spread of this virus if you want to preserve hospital capacity this is the tool we have right now because we don't have testing we don't have contact tracing at scale that's what they were saying and I do think that there probably were, there are disagreements among all of us in this field over what level of that might, what level of economic shutdown was necessary and how long it should have occurred and in what places it should have occurred. But I mean, it is a simple scientific fact that the virus does lose the ability to, to transmit from person to person if people are under stay at home orders. That's, that's a, that is a scientific fact. It's up to the governors to decide what, to weigh that and decide what is the, the economic consequence of that, what is the liberty consequence of that, but what, what you're seeing in a scientific perspective is if you want to do this, this is the answer. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to do that. And I think that's why we elect policymakers, that they're the ones who have to weigh that. That's why, you know, ideally that, that's, a, that's a hard and tough job to have to make, to make these decisions. They're getting expert advice and they have to decide how to, how to temper it and how to treat it. Um, it's not like we're trying to, uh, what everything we say is, is exactly to be followed to the T. There, there's interpretation there and then, and they have to be able to implement those policies based on the science. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be the, that, that there's, 
that it completely translates. Like, it's not a dictate from science that you have to do this. That's what the whole role of the, these elected officials are. They're representing the people to make these decisions. If that makes sense. I, I, yeah, that, that's helpful. Let's ask some questions about the policymakers. So Aaron asked a question about Governor Cuomo. He says, my understanding is that Cuomo and other governors offloaded infected patients into nursing homes. Is there any way this could have been a good idea or even excusable? Thoughts on that? So there, there were directives that were sent by Governor Cuomo did it and Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania uh, mandating nursing homes to take infected or recovered patients with the coronavirus. And the problem was that our nursing homes are not the best at infection control on a good day. Um, and they are ill-equipped to be able to keep those individuals safe from spreading it to others, including staff members. Those should not, those orders, those mandates for nursing homes should not have been enacted by any governor. Uh, nursing homes should have been free to refuse those, those admissions, especially since they were not able to um, deal with the capacity issue of, for, for infection control, for personal protective equipment. So that that did lead to exacerbations of these infections at nursing homes. And it was, it was the wrong action uh, to take and not one that I supported. Okay. Uh, one of the things that you, you supported at the beginning of this, and you talk about it in uh, that article in Medium is, is what you called cocooning. Uh, could, could you say a little bit more about that and what it would mean in contrast to what you've just spoken against? So cocooning is something that's a, it's a complicated concept, but we know that this disease infects people, affects people in very different manners. That there are people that have very mild cases. In fact, most cases are mild, but there are people that have very serious illness from that. And that tends to go up with age. So at above age 60 and up, you can really see uh, a rise in hospitalization rates and mortality. So one way to, to try and mitigate that is to really protect those populations as best you can. It's easier to do it in places like nursing homes or assisted living facilities where they're kind of in an enclave together and you can restrict the movement, have aggressive testing policies, personal protective equipment. It's harder with the community dwelling people of, the, of that age, but, but that's what cocooning meant. It meant trying to take the most vulnerable populations and do that. And even if you didn't do it completely, even if you said, okay, we're not doing it to the community dwelling people, but we're doing it to nursing homes and we're doing it to assisted living facilities. And if you're going to live here, you're going to follow these rules because we don't want this to come in there. That really would have blunted the number of deaths. So I, like I said before, in Pennsylvania, 67% of deaths were in nursing homes. That was the last statistic I saw in Pennsylvania. I mean, that's two thirds of our deaths were in nursing homes in this state. If you, if you really wanted to think about reducing the deaths, it would have been fortifying nursing homes to be able to handle those cases uh, by, by, by having very strict admission criteria, very strict infection control, not mandating that they accept recovered coronavirus patients who still might be contagious. Uh, that, that's what I think about cocooning, is just really trying to protect the vulnerable populations as best you can to try and minimize the impact on them, because they're the ones that are actually, they're the ones that end up absorbing hospital capacity because they have a much higher rate of hospitalization as well as a much higher rate of death. Let's talk a little bit about the metrics that policymakers and others use to assess where we are in this pandemic. So uh, Janet asks a question, aside from ICU capacity, is deaths per 100,000 population an important statistic? I've, I've seen a number of different kinds of statistics used both by government officials and people in the media to try to measure where we are. Uh, every day, uh, there's a press conference in Los Angeles where they first they, they list the number of tests, the total number of cases testing positive, the total number of cases that have tested positive overall, the hospitalization rate, the death rate, 
which among these do you think is the is the most objective measure that we can be looking at? It depends on what your purpose is of looking at the statistic. There's going to be ways, there's different ways to measure this, and there's going to be things we're going to look at in retrospect. People aren't going to be fussing about the percent positive of tests. They're going to be looking at what were the number of deaths, what were the number of cases. So that's what you look at in general for a pandemic, that we say the 1968 flu pandemic killed 100,000 Americans. That's, that, those types of numbers are what are good to, to characterize, characterize the pandemic in retrospect and to compare them. What you're looking at on a day-to-day -day basis, if you're making decisions or public health decisions, to me, the most important ones are hospitalization rates and percent positivity of tests, because it tells you where you're going in this, uh, this outbreak, and we're in the middle of an active phase of managing it. There are very different metrics you might want to look at when you're, when you're trying to, to study a pandemic, but in the midst of responding, those are the two most important metrics that, that I look at. Um, I, I look less at, and remember that deaths are going to lag, that deaths are probably going to follow cases by 14 days, so you're going to see some, some changes in the, in the variables that you're looking at based upon where you, what, at what point you're looking at. But I guess the, you know, the, the overall arching point is that the data is all going to be for whatever, it's gonna be, what data you look at is gonna be based on what, what purpose you have at looking at it. So uh, percent positive and hospitalizations are my two for how I think about where, we go, where we're going. And related to that, if we're, if we're looking at data to try to understand the impact of, of lifting lockdown measures, so I've seen some people uh, on social media, as soon as uh, measures have been lifted in certain states say, uh, and the day after the cases spiked or they went up a certain, by a certain number, but isn't it also the case that you have to take into consideration uh, what the incubation period is for the disease and how long it takes tests for, to come back? How long would you expect uh, it to be before you see what the evidence of the results of lifting lockdowns actually is. About a week is when you're going to start to see it. You need to think about the incubation period lasts up to 14 days, but most people become sick around six. Give them a day or two to get to start presenting at the hospitals or, or at doctor's clinics for tests. So about a week or so uh, before you see the effect of any kind of change. And that's what we were saying even during social distancing when that was being put into place, that we weren't going to see any bending for, for some period of time because you're always looking backwards. Okay, that's, that is helpful. Uh, shifting a bit to the international perspective, we talked about uh, policy responses, and one person has a question about China. How did how did China's actions uh, affect the uh, the course of this epidemic? Is if could they have handled things differently to have contained it in the first place, or was this going to spread internationally regardless? What what do you think? I'm of the belief that this would have spread internationally regardless. Remember that the first case that we have on record now got diagnosed around November 17th. It doesn't appear that the Chinese actually noticed this until late um, in December, enough to actually know something was up because this is happening in the middle of flu season. And remember, these symptoms are overlapping. So I do think that if, if the first case happened on November 17th, and we know about around Christmas time, there was community spread going on in France, that there were a couple of individuals that, that had no travel that were sick and diagnosed with this, 
that this was going to spread internationally uh, no matter what happened. That's the whole problem with respiratory viruses that spread efficiently from human to human. And I wrote a big report on the, the characteristics of pandemic pathogens. And that's one of the things I, I put at the highest level are these respiratory pathogens, that they are not containable by definition. And if you look back to me in January uh, talking about that, I talk about the fact that this isn't going to be containable. We have to be ready for it everywhere. So I don't think that there was any actions they could have done at that point to stop it from spreading because it already had spread by the time they noticed it. Obviously, we need to be better all over the world at detecting these viruses and understanding them. And the fact is that we're 17 years after SARS, which is another coronavirus, and there is no coronavirus vaccine for humans. There are no coronavirus antivirals that were developed in that period of time. So the fact that this coronavirus caused a pandemic and we had nothing on the shelf to actually fight it with is everybody's fault because there was just a lack of will to develop coronavirus countermeasures. And that's the only action that could have prevented this is if we had had really thought about coronaviruses as the pandemic potential, in terms of the pandemic potential that they had, and use the time after SARS, the time after Middle East Respiratory Syndrome emerged to actually prepare for coronaviruses by making vaccines and medications and diagnostic tests, um, we would be in a much better place. Uh, moving back a bit to the question of how to, how to measure the scale of the pandemic, Beth asks a question, uh, what do you think about the accuracy of statistics being gathered, the shifting definitions of COVID-19 uh, related deaths? I, I suspect what she's asking about here is the question of uh, whether simply dying with the infection is being counted as uh, being caused by the infection. Uh, I know that there are people who say that leads to an overcounting. I know there are people who say there are other factors that lead to undercounting. Uh, what's your perspective on this? So it's important to remember that there's a lot of people that come up with these ideas that if you have coronavirus and you get hit by a bus, that's a coronavirus death. That's not what's happening. That's a caricature. There are, there are criteria for probable coronavirus tests when maybe the person had a clinical syndrome that was consistent with coronavirus and they were unable to be tested. And remember, not many people could get tested early on or the test came back negative and we do get some false negatives. So those are what are classified as probable coronavirus tests versus confirmed where you have a test. So I think it is important to remember that during this outbreak, we haven't been able to capture fully the deaths. And if you look at the excess mortality in places where cases were occurring, I mean, it's much higher than it was a year ago. And there was something killing those people. So I do think that we're undercounting coronavirus deaths. I do think because of this environment, it's really important that states and local health departments delineate probable cases, confirmed cases, just to avoid this impression that people are inflating it. Just be very transparent about it and spell it out because it is a valuable thing to know about. Because if you're, if you're trying to put resources to places that need them or understand where a place is on the epidemic curve in a given region, you want to include the probable cases that weren't able to be tested. So I think it's important to, to think, of that, think of it in that manner. It's not some kind of nefarious purpose of inflating numbers. There's also a question from Andy who asks, does testing and contact testing change how many ultimately get the disease or does it simply spread out the spikes? Can you actually change the course of the pandemic with contact tracing, et cetera? You can, I think it's challenging. If you got full, if technically if you got full capture of every case and traced their contacts and isolated those contacts and tested those contacts, you could alter how, what, what the spread of this, this virus would be. So you could alter the course of the pandemic. It would still be a pandemic. You would still get cases, but it might not necessarily, and it would definitely slow down the pace. That Clearly it will do that. But I do think you could probably delimit spread because there are what are called super spreading events where some person disproportionately infects a lot of people. But what if that person's part of a contact trace 
and they say, don't go to that thing. Don't fly on that airplane. Don't do that. You could forestall some of the outbreaks. I think overall, though, until there's a vaccine, this virus is going to be with us. So it's going to have multiple times to infect us. So maybe in the end, everybody or 60% of the population does get this over time. Um, but I do, but, but you can, you, contact tracing can stop outbreaks from occurring. I think I've heard you say in the past that you thought because of the scale of this, that is, because this has gotten to such a scale, you think it's going to be a seasonal uh, disease. Is, do you still think that's true? I do. So remember, this is the seventh human coronavirus we've discovered. And four of those coronaviruses cause about 25% of our common colds. And those four coronaviruses have very stark seasonality. And this is a coronavirus, so it's going to have those biological characteristics in common with its other family members. It's just that when you, when you think about seasonality, there's two things that go on. Seasonality has to do with the environmental conditions that the virus finds itself in. When it is hotter, when it is more sunny, when it is more humid, the virus, it's, it's harder for it to transmit. But that's really about transmission from surfaces for the most part, because it cannot remain viable so long in those characteristics and, and with those characteristics around. But the issue is that there's so many people that are susceptible to infection that it may not matter because there's enough common, there's enough human to human spread going on and surface transmission is always secondary to human to human transmission that it may not fully suppress, especially during this first summer that we're going to be contending with it because there's just so many people infected and so many opportunities to spread it. But I do think on the converse is also true that we might, may have to worry about intensification when we get into the respiratory virus season in fall and, and winter next year, um, the next season, and have to contend with this at the same time as influenza. But I do think that it will exhibit seasonality. It's just gonna take a little bit of time maybe to get that full complete picture that you see with the other coronaviruses. And so, especially if this has such a potential to become seasonal, and it means that potentially we're going to be dealing with it for a long time, I think that leads people to ask questions like the one Ellen just asked. What are we looking at in terms of prospects for a vaccine? I know there are a number of them that are currently being tested. We're starting to get results from those tests. Uh, I'm sure you must be looking at a lot of this data. What can you tell us about what you think of it? So. It's important to remember that vaccine development is something that's usually measured in years, not in months. We are moving very rapidly using new technologies that didn't exist even 10 years ago to get vaccine candidates into clinical trials. There are about a dozen or so that are in, in some stage of clinical trial that are, that, are, that are kind of in more advanced development. We have a few that are made in the United States, some in the United Kingdom, and also in China, uh, where the leading candidates currently are. It, it, I do think that we will get a vaccine. I think that some of the government estimates, even though Operation Warp Speed is in effect right now, that they're trying to, which actually involves manufacturing vaccine doses in the hundreds of millions, even before the trials are done, um, will get things quicker. But I think we, we should be prepared not to meet those 12 to 18 month uh, deadlines that people talk about because vaccine development is tricky. Uh, lots of hiccups can occur. We have a very vocal anti-vaccine movement. So we wanna make sure that we have enough safety data to confidently uh, to confidently uh, administer this to Americans because we want uptake to be high. So we need to do enough clinical trial trials to actually understand the safety profile in order to confidently be able to give it to people. So I do think within a period of, of two years or so, we likely will have vaccine. We may have batches before that, maybe healthcare workers, high-risk individuals getting vaccinated. I don't think there's a biological barrier to a coronavirus vaccine. We have coronavirus vaccine for cows and avian species that are already on the market. So this is just something that there was a lack of will to make before. And now I think it will happen, it's just we have to, to wait. Uh, related to that, another question came in about 
convalescent plasma. Maybe he's asking a question about finding uh, using anti-serums. Uh, what, what are the prospects for that? Those are very interesting. Uh, that's a very interesting way to, to treat this. So what we're doing there is looking at the blood of survivors who have antibodies against this virus and then transfusing that plasma into those that are sick. And that's already going on right now in the United States. It was going on in China. There is a randomized control trial. We're, we're very optimistic that this is going to have good results. It's not going to be a panacea. It's not going to be everybody getting this. But for hospitalized patients, those at highest risk for death, this may be something that uh, can be um, can, can decrease the mortality rate of hospitalized patients. So people are very interested in, in seeing the data from these trials when they get uh, when they're released. We've also gotten uh, at least a couple of questions about the concept of herd immunity. I know there are people who will sometimes say, "No, what we should be doing is just going out, uh, leading life as normal, so that herd immunity can be achieved." Uh, I've even heard it said that that's the reason Sweden didn't have a lockdown. I don't think that's the actual reason that Sweden didn't have a lockdown. But what do you think? What do you think about the prospects for herd immunity? So herd immunity is a concept of just having enough people in the population immune that the virus finds it very hard to spread. And it's different for every disease. Uh, and it depends on the contagiousness. So for something like measles, you need to have around 90% or above 95% herd immunity. For this virus, it's probably above 60%, somewhere in that range. But I don't think that this is something that we can achieve by just letting the virus go. And if you look at places like Sweden, in Stockholm, the percentage positive on antibody tests is not anywhere near uh, the threshold required for, for uh, herd immunity. I do think we'll get herd immunity eventually, either through vaccination and through a combination of vaccination and a combination of people being infected. And there may be enclaves, maybe in a nursing home where they do, they have achieved herd immunity. But I don't think that that's the right way to think about this because you will take a huge toll by letting the virus letting the virus rip. I don't think that's the best way to think about a virus that's this, that has that lethality potential in certain populations. Um, but it is something that we, we hope to get through a vaccine. We're getting close to our time to end. So maybe let's end with one question from Kate about really the long-term future here. When the lockdowns end, uh, and I think you could ask this question about even when cases start to decrease. Should people continue to use masks for the foreseeable future in offices, stores, schools? Should they carry disinfectant, stay away from closely packed people? What's your general recommendation for how private individuals should think about how to live with this, uh, with this pandemic in the, in the upcoming future? So my general recommendation is it's, it's going back to what I said earlier, that it's going to be your individual risk tolerance. The virus is going to be there with every activity you do, and you're going to have to take some, some, uh, you're going to have to make decisions in that environment. And for some people, the risk is going to be very high, and they're going to be much more likely to social distance, to be very meticulous with hand hygiene, refraining from wearing, uh, refraining from touching their face, avoiding congregated places, traveling less. That's all going to happen. For other people, they're going to go back to normal. Just to the subject of masks, um, a, a couple of points on that. Remember, initially we said public, general public shouldn't wear masks because masks don't prevent you from getting infected. That remains true, that these masks by the general public do not prevent you from getting infected. The, the recommendation from the CDC changed because there was some data on asymptomatic individuals, and they believed that cloth masks might diminish transmission from asymptomatic individuals. This was a recommendation that wasn't without controversy in the field. Um, it is still something that we don't have um, strong, strong data behind um, because household masks are not necessarily that effective and they paradoxically make people touch their face more. However, it is also the price that people are, are willing to pay now to open because this has become a recommendation. And, and we're trying right now to see if there are there better ways to do this. So for example, you might be hearing about face shields. 
there actually probably is some data that face shields, like a headband with the visor that comes down, a plexiglass visor, may actually be effective. And you may see a shifting towards those as the preferred face covering. Um, so it is going to be something that I, that I think is going to evolve over time. And you should expect that, that the science, we're in the middle, this is real time. So when we say something and it changes, that doesn't mean we were lying to you in the beginning. That, that this is us trying to figure out hard, the questions to very hard, the answers to very hard questions. Well, thanks for that, Amish. Uh, I want to I wanna thank you really a lot for uh, joining us today. I know your time is really valuable, but I, we, we also really value what you've been doing and really the way you've been acting as a voice of reason for uh, really the entire uh, world at this point. I mean, uh, you've, you've, uh, you've been speaking to so many different audiences and being willing to really you know, tell the truth about what's going on, whether they like to hear it or not, and, and on a number of different issues. So uh, thanks again for joining us. And I, I hope we're gonna be able to, to see you again sometime soon. Thank you. Um, I do want to just uh, close by making a few announcements. So New Ideal Live happens on a weekly basis. If you, if you like what you see today and you'd like to see more of it, please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, and if you click on the little bell when you do that, that'll be, make sure that you get notifications whenever we go live and whenever new videos are posted. Typically, New Ideal Live happens 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Mondays and or Wednesdays. Uh, we, we try to do at least one a week. Sometimes we do two. I'll tell you right now, there's even a possibility we're going to do a third one this week. We're possibly doing one on Friday because of the uh, we had to reschedule our topic from Monday. It might be that only Friday will work for it. Uh, you'll get more information about that soon if you are subscribed to follow us. So. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. I know we got a lot of questions that we didn't get to answer, but there were just so many questions that came in. We only had time for a select number of them. Uh, if you didn't get your question answered this time, please try asking us again in the future. And you can always send us an email at newideal@einrand.org at if you'd like to get further follow-up. So thanks, everyone, again, and we will hopefully be seeing you all again soon. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.